Hello and welcome to the CU20 podcast. CU20 is a group of young adults who meet together to discuss faith in Jesus Christ in our world today. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast, which is a look through the book of Luke. Today we'll find ourselves in Luke chapter 21. So once you've found it, just keep it open. Luke chapter 21 is where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 5. We're going to go all the way down to verse 38. We're going to read it once through, and then we're going to uh, read it at least one more time, uh, bit by bit as well. Now, what prompts this whole dialogue is an interesting observation. And I think it's an observation which we can fall into a lot as well. It's the observation of when we see something that's grand, something that's impressive, something that's huge and powerful, the idea of it ever going away or it ever crumbling seems impossible. It seems to our very limited scope that there's no way that this thing will ever come to an end. And though history has proved time and time and time again that that type of thinking is so foolish because how often do the mighty fall and those things that are grand and impressive do actually crumble, yet every single time that it happens, so often there's a sense of shock around it. There's a sense of, I can't believe this is happening, like I never thought this would happen. Uh, And... When we think of the institutions that are existing in the world today, the nations as they are in the world today, the idea that this is just the way it's going to be and so obvious that, oh, you know, nothing's ever going to change, that has been proven to be such a foolish assumption time and time again, and yet we can't seem to shake it. And so the scripture comes in, I think, in, partly, in part to correct this assumption that these things that we rely on around us and we think either have always been this way or will always be that way is such a faulty assumption. And the only true foundation, the only bedrock that we, we can really rely on and we should really think of as permanent is the word of God. So you'll see what I, why I'm starting with that because it's that very assumption or that very kind of way of thinking that leads to Jesus saying what he says here. So Luke 21, starting in verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about the temple. Uh, Excuse me, let me start again. Some of his, his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will, the sign, what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first. But the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from the heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself. 
For I will give you the words and the wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will, be, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will, be, will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be a great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint in terror, apprehensive of what is coming into the world, for heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and at all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on those who live on the face of, uh, on the, face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch. And pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. The starting statement that Jesus makes here sort of sets the tone for the discord, discourse. He says, watch out that you are not deceived. The idea that Jesus is trying to convey throughout the whole thing is to accurately convey how things will go forward and what traps to avoid. And there are many. As you can look through that, you could pick out a few different things that will lead you astray in one way or another. And so his aim is to develop the right kind of thinking among his disciples. Now, this response that he gives is complex. He is speaking of an end, which is the end of Jerusalem, but he's also speaking of the end, which is the end of all things, the, the end, the, the, the day of the Lord. And so it's hard to quite decipher when he's speaking of one and then when he's speaking of the other because they're quite linked together. And I think the reason that he brings them up together is because they have a lot of links together that we're going to unpack as well. And as you learn about one, you need to see it within the context of the whole, but you also need to see how the whole is mirrored in the one. I know it's already confusing. But 
Something is here for every single generation. Let's say we believe ourselves to be obviously far removed from the destruction of the temple, which we are. It happened thousands of years ago. And we also believe ourselves to be far removed from the day, the end. So if we have that idea, we might think of ourselves as sort of safe from either extreme. And therefore, this passage not really saying a lot directly to us. But as I said in the beginning, we often think that certain things around us have a sense of permanence, and yet they don't. And in so many ways, little ends mirror the big end. And we need to be ready, even for what is writ small, the the day of judgment writ small in our lives, as things fall apart around us, or as things fall apart within us, when our health declines, or our relationships fall apart, or our businesses fail, or our nations crumble, or whatever it is, we need to be ready for those ends as they come up, and to know how to contextualize them within the plan of God, how to see them within the whole scope of things, and what it is we are meant to do in that time. That's why we can say there is something for every single generation to listen to in this, pa- in this passage. I don't know if you've ever read uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but one of the more famous bits of it that a lot of people know about is that you know, the, the whole book is centered around this person writing another book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And do you remember what uh, it looks like? There's, there's two big words on the front cover of that book. Do you remember what they are? Don't panic. So the idea is it's a compendium of how to kind of navigate throughout the whole universe and what you need to know to live rightly in the universe. And right at the very front of this book and written in, two, in big letters, it says, don't panic. And I think you could probably put that over the cover of this teaching. What Jesus is trying to tell the people, at least in part, is when things are happening around you, when things are falling apart, as they quite soon will for Jerusalem, don't panic. And we cannot panic for a multitude of reasons. We need to be aware of what is to come so that it doesn't surprise us when it does come. We don't don't fall into panic. And we need to be aware of what promises are carried along with us as we go through these times of testing and trial and difficulty so that we're not prone to anxiety and worry and, and panic in the midst of it all as well. And so he is blended together masterfully Jesus has blended together elements of the short-term and the long-term, elements of the prophetic and the apocalyptic. And if you think, what's the difference between something that's prophetic and what's apocalyptic? A prophetic writing is something that is predicting the future using elements that are already present, so armies and nations and things like that. And so it's prophetic saying, this is what's going to happen you know, armies are going to come and this is going to... And something that's apocalyptic is predicting the future that will happen, but what is going to happen will have a unique sense of the miraculous, the supernatural, the magnificence of God's intervention into the world. So that's why Revelations is apocalyptic, because it's got this massive sense of scale. It's this God is coming in and disrupting human history. He is bringing an the end, capital T, capital E, the end to all things, and therefore it's apocalyptic. And there's both being blended together here as well. And what we're going to try to do now is separate it out so that we can understand it best. And I thought the best way we could do that is, that's why I have a whiteboard behind me, is to chart it out. 
because we're going to try to see where along the timeline each of his responses and his, his sort of statements are and try to understand it from that way. And in some senses, I, I heard the analogy in one of the commentaries I, let, I read that he was sort of playing a tape in reverse. So he's starting at the end and reversing back. I don't really like that analogy. I think it's way too simplistic. But he is, he is sort of answering the question in the long term and then scaling it back to the short term and then bringing it back into the fullness, like going back to the long term as well. So he's starting at the end, rewinding, and then fast forwarding again. I don't know, something like that. But we start at verse 8. And so I'm going to chart it for us, and I'm going to kind of go back and forth with this now. Oh, that's clever. Yes, we should move that. Actually, Marty, do you think I can use this mic instead? Thanks. Do I need a mic? Do you guys hear me okay? Steve, can you hear me okay? It's okay? Maybe a mic? Yeah. I got it. Three, five. Okay. So we start at verse 8. This is where he really begins in earnest. He says, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. So there's a big clue right there. The end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nations will rise against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. There will be great earthquakes, famines, pestilence in various places, and fearful events and great signs from the heavens. From the heaven. From heaven, excuse me. So this is basically dealing with the end. And it's looking at the end, which is this point, and if you say that's the end, it's looking at the period that comes before the end. What's going to lead up to it? And so if this is now, in the biblical times, and that's the end, Jesus is really describing the period of time, giving a warning that is a blanket kind of warning, saying throughout this time, there's going to be all these kinds of things you need to be aware of. You'll be aware, you need to be aware of false messiahs and false ideas which will distract you and take you away. But you also need to be aware that there's going to be calamity. There's going to be wars. There's going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be great signs from the heavens as well. There's going to be these big shifts and moves going on around the world. And so he's really describing the period between what he's saying and the end itself, or at least just before the end, because we're going to get there in just a, in a few minutes, but the end itself will have some, somewhat of a uniqueness that you need to watch for as well. But leading up into the, until the end, there's going to be something along this. And so this is basically verse 8 to 12, I believe it is, or 11. Where did I stop? 11. So that's verse 8 to 11. So the point of what Jesus is saying here is really to contextualize what he's about to say next. And he's not done contextualizing yet, but it's the beginning of the contextualization where he's saying, look, despite all of these kinds of things happening, wars and famines and you know, false messiahs, all these things, you need to bear in mind that this is part of what it was always going to happen. This is part of the plan. God's plan is still advancing. Despite all of this, you need to keep that in mind. And I think he's doing that to contextualize it because 
like I've said a couple times now, we have this tendency to see something that's right in front of us attacking what we thought to be grand in scale and impenetrable in, in power. And when we see it falling, we think this must be the end. Nothing could be worse than this. How often have you heard statements like that, especially in the last year or so? Oh my gosh, this is definitely the end. Like Things cannot get worse than this. That kind of thinking is the type of stuff that Jesus is really contextualizing, say, saying there's always going to be stuff like that. There's always going to be things that seem bad in this world. When these things happen, don't be frightened. Like it says in verse 11, these things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. So that's verse 9. So this is dealing with the whole passage of time. He goes on in verse 12 to 18 to talk about how the church uniquely will experience this time as well. Before all this, so actually looking even further back than that, and so you could say before all this, meaning starting basically right now, starting from the time of my death and ascension, the persecution of the church begins. And so he says, before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and, on, and all on account of my name so that you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves for I will give you the words and the wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will be hated, will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. So what Jesus is essentially saying here is before, before even, I guess we could put a little bit of time here and just say, before the trouble in the world is even noticeable at that point, before it becomes noticeable, there will be a constant persecution that will go towards, will be carried out throughout this time as well. So in this way, that's something else you need to know and be prepared for as well. Verse 19. So throughout this time, the persecution will go on, but you will also have the resources to meet the difficulties as they come into your life as well. And so here's where the promises come in. First, we have a warning, don't be deceived. Now we have a kind of a warning saying, be prepared for this, but in the midst of it all, I promise you, you will have the resources you need to bear with the difficulties. And also, like, it's, I, I love this sort of parallel here. You look in verse... Um, 16 to 18. In verse 16, he says, and they will put some of you to death. And in verse 18, he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. How can he say both? How can he say some of you are going to die, but not a hair on your head will perish? Like they seem to be contradictory truths. What is the way that we blend them together is to remind ourselves of what Christ has said in other places. Don't be afraid of the one who can put you to death, but be afraid instead of God who can you know, destroy the body and the soul. What he's saying is, though it may seem that people are winning and the church is being crushed, God is in control. Nothing can come against you, really, that is not, in the ha- not measured out by the hand of God. Even though some of you will be put to death, none of this thwarts the plan of God. None of this disrupts the, the movement of the gospel out into the world. It is all in God's hands. They are not going to be able to really do you any harm because of that. Therefore, stand firm and you will win life. 
part of the lesson that Jesus is trying to instill within his disciples is to be prepared for hard times. Hard times are to be expected, not only on a global level, but on a personal level. As you go through life, you will experience suffering as well. And there's really four attitudes that I think are required in order to finish strong. Here are the four. Life is a struggle. History is his story. The gospel cannot be stopped. And we are not alone. Let me unpack it just a little bit. Life is a struggle. As Christians, we should be prepared to struggle. And this isn't sort of some kind of cynical, oh, you know, life is difficult type of moment. Of course, life is difficult. But for a Christian in particular, a Christian life is one of embracing struggle, struggling against our own sin, struggling against uh, a world around us that seems to pull away in a different direction, struggling against some hostilities that will come into our lives as well, struggling with the, the brokenness of the world as we seek to bring love and change to it and challenge to it as well. Life is a struggle. It's a struggle that we need to just accept in order to walk faithfully with God. And if we're expecting life to be easy or to be you know, just uh, quiet and smooth, it will not be as that at all. Secondly, history is his story. We see this coming out already, but it's going to be brought more and more as the passage keeps going. But the fact that in the long run, everything that is happening is within God's plan. Everything that happens, even the evil things, will work out in the long run. This isn't some saccharine, you know, every cloud has a silver lining type of thing. But in the long run, in the scope of eternity, even the evil things that happened were permitted to happen only so far as they would achieve the opposite of their purpose. And so when you look at the evil that is committed in this world that, is seek, that seeks to destroy people or to undo the work of God or whatever it is, in the long run, we will see that just like the book of Job, where the devil is permitted uh, to do certain things to Job, the devil's intention is to destroy Job's character, cause him to sin and to, to renounce God. All that the devil does only goes so far as to achieve the opposite of his, of his purpose, in that it causes Job ultimately to increase in faithfulness to God, to increase in his understanding, and it's gone so much further than that because now it's written in the Scripture and millions of people have had the opportunity to learn that lesson that Job learned to hold on to God in difficult times. And so we see the opposite of its intention was achieved because of the way that God moves things. History is his story. Thirdly, the gospel cannot be stopped. We need to continue to preach it for that reason. That at the end of the day, no matter what comes against us, our goal is to be faithful. The fruit is in God's hands. The fruit is birthed by the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit brings new life into us, we use that new life to preach the gospel to others. And the gospel cannot be stopped, and so we cannot stop as well. And lastly, the, way, the reason that we can be so assured of the last one, the gospel cannot stop, is because we are not alone. And that's what this passage is really trying to enforce within us. You know, make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself, for I will give you the words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Even when you get to the point that your family have sold you out and your brothers and sisters and your friends have sold you out, you have a faithful friend in Christ. You will not be alone. So when you face these terrible trials, sometimes where the whole world has turned its back on you, 
you are still not alone even then. God is a friend to you. And a friend means someone who is constant, someone who is there committed to you as well. So those are the four attitudes we need to adopt that I think are quite clearly brought out by this passage. Life is a struggle, but history is his story. The gospel cannot be stopped. We are not alone. Now, once Jesus has contextualized it, he then goes to answer specifically the question that they ask, which is, when will this temple be destroyed? And he begins to answer in verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out, and let those who are in the country not enter the city. For this is a time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and for nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against its pe- this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken prisoner to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So this teaching is specifically about the period of time in which Jerusalem is besieged, overtaken, and the temple is torn down by the Romans. This happened. This happened in around about AD 70 or 60 to 70-ish. I forget exactly when. They do know specifically when. I've just forgotten. But so we're dealing with a period of time that is somewhere between the now. I'll just shorten it a bit. Oh, please don't be permanent. No, you're okay. Somewhere between just after the now, but it's a very specific period of time. And during that period of time, we need to remember that Jesus spoke about this often. He spoke about the impending judgment of Jerusalem, and he spoke about it in a way that it was not an arbitrary thing. The the destruction of Jerusalem comes because of the rejection of Jesus. Because they reject him, it leads to this outcome. And this is nothing that Jesus takes lightly, causes him deep pain and sadness. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because of the pain that is going to come upon them as well, as we should too. As we, we have accounts of the destruction of Jerusalem, it was terrible and terrifying time. Many, many thousands of people killed and enslaved during that time. Many, many atrocities committed during that time as well. Interestingly, it seems that the early Christians actually followed Christ's advice. We have the writings of Eusebius who stated that the Christians who were living in Jerusalem when they saw the Roman armies approaching fled to the nearby uh, city of Pella, and there they stayed. And so they actually, and, and, and Eusebius says that they did it under sort of divine instruction. So, you know, people think, well, did they receive, uh, you know, an, an actual in that moment word from God? Or are they just referring to this passage or a passage like it? Because actually this passage comes in all of the synoptic gospels. But we see that they took Jesus' advice seriously. What we see in the destruction of Jerusalem is the evidence that, G, that God takes sin and unfaithfulness very seriously. And it's mirrored, it is, it is sort of writ small what the day of judgment will be writ globally. That day, the temple's destruction will be nothing in, compar- in comparison to the day of the Lord, the day of wrath. 
but we can see, and like I said, it's, it's portrayed in such a way by Christ. This is not arbitrary. What happened was a result of their rejection of Christ, and that's what came upon them as a result. So we see the day as being a magnified version of that and all of the, the terror and the tragedy that it encompasses. But then we can also bring it down to the personal as well. So every person, every single person has to face God face to face one day. And when they do, will they do so having rejected his offer of grace, having scorned his, his, his savior or not? These passages are designed to wake us up, to rouse us, to cause us to contemplate our own mortality and our own accountability before God. Jesus teaches this in order to awaken his disciples to say, this is serious business, what I'm talking about. Rejection of me will cause terrible, terrible consequences as well. And so Jesus turns up the dial on this idea as we go towards the end, the last few verses, verse 25 to verse 28. Jesus shifts gears once more to speak of the end, what will take place at the end. He says, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror apprehensive of what is coming into the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, we will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So here is where Jesus is speaking of the end. The end. As it takes place as well. Don't read into the fact that it's the middle of the line. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> it's the end. But it seems that the way Jesus is describing it, the end will be perplexing for many who are experiencing it. They will be bewildered by what's going on, what is happening in this world. But for the church, it should not be perplexing. We should be able to identify what is going on and say, this is what we've been waiting and watching for. It is now beginning and so when we begin to see what it is, these signs, these, the roaring and tossing of the sea, these great uh, signs and what else does it say? All these uh, heavenly bodies being shaken. There's, sort of, there's enough to go on here to say that when these things begin, the church should be able to take notice of them so that they will not be perplexed by what is going on, but identify them as the signs of the end. And when that begins to happen, we raise our heads and say, we are about to see God's victory. We're about to see the revelation that he will have the final word. So when these things start to happen, we know that our redemption is near. So hold on. Do not be surprised. Do not be in terror. Hold on. Darren Box says this. He's one of the commentators I read. He says, um, we are to have resolve that grows in the face of the, assur- uh, of the assurance that God will indeed do what he has promised. He will vindicate his children. Thus, we must continue to walk with trust. Trust means continuing to hope in what we cannot see. Yet even though we cannot see it, we can see Jesus, the author and defender of our faith, who promises that one day he will return for us in great power and glory. So looking to him, we serve and wait with great expectations. So here is the end of Jesus' 
partly apocalyptic, partly prophetic teaching that he gives to his disciples to prepare them for the end that is to come. He goes on in verse 29 to verse 36 to really interpret it for them, to tell them, like, this is why I'm telling you this. He says, he then told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourself and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have, uh, what is it? Oh, man. Okay, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Now, as you look at that, and I think most of it's quite clear, Jesus is being quite clear as to what he means, but there is a very perplexing verse, which is verse 32, where he says, Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. So what does he mean by that? Because if he means that the end will happen before this generation, the one he's speaking to, passes away, well, then that would be wrong because the end didn't come. The end still hasn't come, and it's been many, many generations since then. And so some skeptics point to this and say, well, how do you deal with this? Because it seems that he's saying the end was going to come before a generation passes. The argument would be compelling if not for the other teachings of Christ, such as even within this very passage, he gives the impression that there is much to come still. He says the end, the end will not come right away. He says that back in verse, verse 9. He has said in other passages, like in the book of Mark, I believe it's Mark 13. I should have checked that before I came up to preach. But he says that he, he doesn't know when the end will come. Only the Father knows when the end will come. So why would he say that and then say, no, no, well, it'll be within this generation. If he doesn't know, it would make no sense for him to make that kind of a prediction as well. So if he doesn't mean that the end will come before this generation has passed, what does he mean? There's a few different interpretations that it could be, and I just picked a couple of them. There's actually quite a few more that people say might be the case as well. Uh, But the the two most popular that came up again and again are this. Well, there's three, I guess, popular ones. He's either talking about the destruction of Jerusalem will happen before this generation passes away, which was true. It did happen within a generation. Or he could be referring to generation, meaning a type of person, which is actually one of the ways the Bible speaks of a generation. It's like a a kind of person. So this generation, meaning the way people are, you know, like expect persecution, uh, expect uh, the kind of uh, waywardness, expect the, you know, the false messiahs, these kinds of things. This generation as an archetype will not pass away. So in other words, saying life will continue this way until the end. So in other words, this is the, fi- this is the last step before the end. And nothing new is going to come before the end comes. He could mean that as well. The last thing he could mean is that when those final signs that he began to speak about in verse 25, you know, the, the, the signs of the end, signs in the sun, moon, and stars, uh, the roaring of the oceans, heavenly bodies being shaken, when those things begin, it'll be relatively quick until the end comes. 
So basically from the beginning of that, that generation will not pass away until the end fully comes. So relatively, it'll be quick in terms of everything that has come prior to that, and then it'll sort of come quite succinctly at the end. Once the, the end signs begin, within a generation, the end itself will come. So those are the options. I'm not going to tell you which one I think is preferable. I honestly don't know enough to make that kind of a judgment, but I find them, all of them fairly compelling as well. Now we come at last to the reason why Jesus is saying all of this. His general reason is, do not be weighed down by this life. He's rousing people. Do not be caught up in everything that this world is going to bring about. Sorry, I need to drink something. Sooner or later, everyone will face the reality of his return. Everyone will face the reality that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and we need to deal with that. For many, 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 it will be a surprise. It will be a shock. For you, it should not be so. For his disciples, they should live in such a way that they are waiting, that they are watching, that they are aware of their accountability, they are aware of the promises, and it causes a lack of anxiety when things are going terribly wrong. It also causes a weariness to, to getting caught up in this world, drunkenness and carousing and those kinds of things. We refrain from those kinds of things because we identify them as something that will lead us astray. So do not be caught by surprise. Wake up. Stay awake. Stay watching is his, 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 the position that he's calling us to here. Now, this is an example of a kind of passage that typically I see churches these days refrain from really engaging with. When it comes to apocalyptic uh, and even prophetic passages, typically the church, or Christians, I won't say churches generally, but Christians that I speak to tend to not know quite what to do with this. It's confusing, it's really heavy and, and you know, graphic. Uh, and it's difficult to know how it is we are to deal with it. And so what it causes a lot of times is people to ignore them altogether. People stray, kind of get around them and don't really look at them. But I think that that's a mistake. And I think it's a mistake because the Bible, in a sense, is supposed to be kind of like a medicine cabinet. Now, at your medicine cabinet at home, you have a variety of medicines for a variety of ailments, Right? If you have a headache and you open your medicine cabinet and all you have is Tums, it's not going to be extremely useful to you. You can take a lot of Tums, but it's probably not going to do much for your headache. And so you have Tums for stomach aches and you know, Advil for headaches. And this, is, this sermon is not sponsored by anyone. But you have all of these different medicines for all these different things. And I believe that different teachings of Scripture Scripture are there to relieve us of different false thinking, attitudes, things that need correction or things that need to be enforced upon our hearts uh, to bring us joy or to bring us hope or to bring us correction, whatever it is. And so when we avoid certain huge teachings of Scripture, we do so by, and limit ourselves in our ability to be able to correct or to deal with what's going on inside us. Eschatology, which is... Uh, dealing, which is theology that deals with the end of things, is a huge part of scripture. 
It's really big. And if we avoid it, we can fall into certain kinds of traps. We can be taken off guard by things, thinking things to be permanent, and then they're not. And we realize in our terror that we've relied on things that we ought not to have relied on. All manner of things can come to us and cause anxiety within us when we don't realize that the past and the present are not all that exist, that there is a definite and well-defined future that we are heading towards and that God is in control every single step of the way. And so if you want to be healthy, you need to stock your medicine cabinet up with all that you need to be able to take your vitamins, the right vitamins. I know I say that word weird. Don't mock me for it. Take your supplements, take the right medication when you need it. A healthy relationship with God contains balance. It contains a variety of things. And what, we are, what part of what being healthy means, at least described by this passage, is that we, number one, we watch. And we watch out. Watch out for false teachers. And watch for the signs. Watch for the evidence of God doing things in this world. Watch to make sure we don't think too narrow-mindedly about things. Secondly, that we serve faithfully. In and out of season, no matter what is going on, we are faithful, knowing that we are not alone and that the gospel cannot be stopped. Therefore, we serve faithfully. And lastly, we rejoice without shrinking. So that when calamity comes, when disaster strikes upon the world, we can be those who hold on in hope and do not shrink back, terrified, as so many will be, but we can continue to push forward and hold our head up high, knowing that redemption will come. Why don't we pray? Dear God, we thank you for this complex, rich masterpiece that you have given to us, Jesus. We pray, we pray to our great king, our great prophet, our great God, Jesus. Thank you for all that you have taught us we ask, Lord, that you would rouse us the way that you intended to rouse your disciples. You would bring to us all the clarity and truth that we need in order to live rightly in this world. So humble us, open our eyes, Lord. Help us to encourage one another with these truths where we see each other waning or going off track. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to find out more about CU20 and People's Church, please visit our website. You'll find the link in the description of this podcast. Also, if you have any questions or comments, just reach out to me via email. Again, you'll find my email address in the description of the podcast. Have a great day.